Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and this is the Valentine's Day episode. We're going to be talking about flowers and chocolate and murdering your lover's wife. This is the story of Cordelia Botkin. But first, a Victorian society tip. Did you know the Victorians communicated their thoughts, wishes, and desires through a secret language of flowers? This art or language was called floriography, and in a society where obvious displays of emotion were not encouraged, Victorians had to find another way to make their feelings heard. This was most popular in upper-middle-class circles, particularly cultivated by women who, to be honest, had a lot of free time to think about such things. Coupled with the growing popularity of botany as a hobby, Victorians devised a complex language of flowers based on the growing habits, characteristics, folklore, color, and more of each plant. Now, you could send flowers to friends or family, but mostly this came in handy in courting. A suitor would gift a lady a small bouquet made up of flowers declaring his intentions. In most instances, etiquette dictated that she should quietly and politely accept. But the next time she knew she would see that suitor, she would be sure to be holding a bouquet made up of flowers meant to send a message back to him. These bouquets were also referred to as tussie mussies and looked more like what we would describe today as a corsage or a boutonniere. The word tussie comes from the old Middle English word for nosegay, which referred to a small bouquet of flowers meant to be held under the nose because, well, the Middle Ages were stinky and a person of nobility shouldn't be subjected to such things. So if they had to leave court or their manor or whatever, they'd often carry a small handful of sweet-smelling flowers right under their nose. Mussy referred to the bit of moss that was moistened and wrapped around the stems of the flowers to keep them fresh. Tussie mussies. So, for example, if a suitor gifted a lady red roses or tulips and they mixed in a couple of dahlias, that is a very obvious declaration of love and commitment. But if the next time they were to cross paths, she was holding an arrangement poignantly featuring periwinkles, well, that meant she just hoped they could be friends. Nowadays, when it comes to selecting flowers, we just kind of like what we like, right? So here are a few of the messages you'd be sending in the Victorian era based on your favorite flower. First, roses. Not surprisingly, the color of the rose has a lot to say about your intention as well. Red is for love. Pink is for happiness, white is for innocence or worthiness, yellow is a message of jealousy, infidelity, or decline of feelings, and dark crimson roses indicate mourning. Tulips also come in many colors, similar to roses, red indicates passion or love, and yellow in this case is more cheerfulness or friendship. Sunflowers, big showy blooms, were a sign of haughtiness. Daisy indicates innocence and loyalty, but also secrets being kept. Orchids were quite rare and as such inherently expressed status as well as deep love and passion. Lilies are another flower that come in a multitude of colors. When it comes to lilies, white means purity, yellow means happiness, orange means hatred, and tiger lilies meant wealth or pride. Calla lilies, though, signified beauty. Irises meant faith, trust, wisdom, hope, and valor. Hydrangea meant gratitude for being understood, but by the same token could mean frigidity or heartlessness. Violet, which is my favorite, meant watchfulness, modesty, and faithfulness. If I didn't name your favorite, be sure to follow me on TikTok at A Goodnight for a Murder. I'm going to be posting some more on there. If I had to recommend one source to learn more about the Victorian language of flowers, it would be the book Floriography, an illustrated guide to the Victorian language of flowers by Jessica Rue. I'll link to it in the episode blog on my website. 
announcements before we get into tonight's case. First, welcome to new Patreon member Celeste, the latest member of the Housekeeper and Butler tier. Thank you and welcome. I am so glad you're here. Hopefully, you're enjoying all the bonus content posted up there. If you are interested in more Victorian true crime stories and society tips, I do create bonus content to accompany every episode, and those are only available through the Housekeeper and Butler tier on Patreon, which you can learn more about on the website. The second announcement is that this month will wrap up season one of a Good Night for a Murder podcast. There will be this episode, then one more this month, then I'm going to be taking a short break to line up more content, and I will be back and better than ever in May. But I don't want to leave you without your Victorian true crime fix while I'm gone. I have some special content that I'm going to continue to release for you every other week while I'm in between seasons. Thank you so much to everyone for listening so far. I went into this hardly expecting more than a handful of downloads per episode, and you all have exceeded my expectations, so thank you again. There is certainly more to come. Thanks for sitting through the announcements, everyone. Now let's get on with the story. A Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Cordelia Bakken was born Cordelia Brown in 1854 in Polk County, Missouri. After her birth, the family apparently relocated the same year to Brownville, Nebraska, the town of Brownville being named after her family. Now, when I think of Nebraska in 1854, I imagine simple prairie living. But being situated on the banks of the Missouri River, the town quickly became a bustling cultural center and transfer point for westbound wagon caravans. In fact, in 1860, it became Nebraska's very first telegraph connection. So Cordelia was no farm girl. Now, I can't tell if her family up and moved to California or if Cordelia met her husband in Nebraska then moved to California. But either way, in 1872, she meets and marries a man named Welcome Botkin, and they make their home in Stockton, California. Yes, his name is Welcome, as in, thank you, you're welcome. I know it's not a common name, but to be honest, he doesn't feature too prominently in our story. As a fun aside, though, America saw this early trend of naming babies after moral attributes or virtues, such as steadfast, earnest, faith, mercy, and in this case, welcome in case you're looking for some Victorian baby naming inspiration. So Cordelia and husband Welcome are residing in Stockton, California. That same year, they have a son they name Beverly. I know, another unusual name, but he is also peripheral to our story, so let's keep going. Welcome worked as a grain broker, and it sounds like Cordelia spent some time working as a vaudeville actress. Now, some would describe Cordelia as the life of the party, but others held the opinion that she was rather vain and shallow. She liked to brag in particular about all the photographers she posed for, and it was noted that her favorite pose to be photographed in was with her hands behind her head with her elbows out, which was considered quite a brazen pose for a lady at that time. By 1895, though, Cordelia and Welcome have become estranged, and Welcome is putting Cordelia up in an apartment in San Francisco while he and their son remain in Stockton. Also living in San Francisco at that time was John Preston Dunning. John was originally from the state of Delaware, where he met and married his wife, Mary Elizabeth Pennington. He worked for the Associated Press and was a well-respected journalist who achieved notoriety for his work covering events in Samoa and Chile. 
His work had garnered him a promotion to superintendent of the Associated Press's Western Division Bureau, located in San Francisco. It's at this point that he and his wife relocate to San Francisco, and they welcome a baby girl, I believe, in about 1892. However, John was not a very good husband, and he often enjoyed the company of women other than his wife. So, in 1895, John was out for a bike ride in Golden Gate Park when he spots a smartly dressed, attractive woman sitting on a park bench. John rolls up, and as he approaches the bench, wouldn't you know it, just his luck, is his bike tire going flat? He better deal with this right away. He rolls to a stop next to the bench the lovely lady is seated at and dismounts to inspect his tire. If you haven't already guessed, the lady seated at the bench is our girl Cordelia. They strike up a conversation, and by the time John realizes his bike tire is fine after all, he and Cordelia have already made arrangements to meet up for dinner. And so begins their courtship. Now, eventually it's revealed that Cordelia is married but estranged from her husband, but no matter because John is married too. The revelation doesn't give either of them pause, and John becomes a regular visitor to Cordelia's apartment. John's wife, Mary, finds out about their affair pretty quickly, and she is not having it. She up and moves her and her daughter straight back to Dover, Delaware, where her family is. John, though, will carry on with Cordelia for another two years or so. The pair enjoyed going out for cocktails and betting at the racetrack. Now, I'm not blaming this on Cordelia or saying she was the catalyst for this, but after meeting Cordelia, John starts to have just a little too much fun. He starts drinking more, which leads to more gambling, and soon he's neglecting his work assignments. It was then discovered that he had embezzled $4,000 from his employer, the Associated Press, in order to try and settle his gambling debts. That is just under $150,000 in today money. Consequently, he loses his job for the Associated Press, and other smaller papers he'd been working for fire him as well. In 1898, though, the Associated Press actually rehires him to cover the Spanish-American War, and he is to be sent to Puerto Rico on assignment. Now, all the while that John has been carrying on with Cordelia, he continued to exchange letters almost daily with his wife Mary. It's in these letters that John informs Mary that he is being sent on assignment to Puerto Rico, and he wants to know, when it's over, can he come back to Delaware and be with her and his daughter? And Mary gives him that chance. She says yes, when his assignment is through, they can leave San Francisco and whatever happened there behind them, and he can come back. So John breaks the news to Cordelia that after he leaves to Puerto Rico, he'll never see her again. He has no plans to return to San Francisco, and he's breaking off their relationship to go be with his wife. And Cordelia is distraught. She begs and pleads with him to come back to her, but John holds firm in his decision. She accompanies him across the bay out of the city and reportedly wept bitterly as he departed. So at first, it sounds like Cordelia was pretty depressed. But then she got mad. And she comes up with a plan to encourage John to return to her instead. Meanwhile, in Delaware... Mary starts to receive anonymous letters from someone who claims to be, very simply, a friend. This friend has something of a delicate matter they think Mary needs to know about. The letter writer claims that Mary's husband has been keeping company with, quote, an attractive woman. They go on to inform Mary that her husband is, quote, constantly with this interesting and pretty woman, and they warn Mary that this woman is now divorcing from her husband, all owing to the marked intimacy with Mr. Dunning. It's Cordelia writing the letters. We all guessed that, right? So Mary decides that she is going to ignore these letters. She has a feeling she knows who they're from and that they're bogus. She takes the letters and gives them to her father for safekeeping, and she doesn't think of them again. 
Time goes by, and then one day, a package arrives for Mary. Mary wasn't expecting anything, but she opens it and finds what I guess you could call a bit of a care package from one of her friends, Mrs. Corbelly, in San Francisco. She assumes it's from Mrs. Corbelly anyway. The only way the sender of the package identified themselves was through a note in the box that reads, with love to yourself and baby, and it's signed Mrs. C. Inside the box is a box of chocolates and a handkerchief with the words City of Paris embroidered on it. San Francisco, then and even now, had a reputation for their production of fine chocolates, and City in Paris was an early department store known for its fine goods and impressive rotunda and glass dome construction. Now, any friend of Mary's, in fact, anyone who'd met Mary for more than five minutes, knew that she loved chocolate. She was always looking for just a little bit of chocolate to get her through her day. Maybe Mrs. C thought Mary was missing some of these things she enjoyed during her short time in San Francisco and sent them along. How thoughtful of her. That evening, Mary's sister Ida was hosting a dinner at the family's shared home, and after dinner, Mary opened the box of chocolates to pass around. Shortly thereafter, a number of those who dined at the home that night began to feel unwell. Mary, Ida, Ida's two children, and two friends who had attended were all stricken. They suffered stomach pains and vomiting, and at first, food poisoning was expected. But as the evening wears on, Mary and Ida's father and mother feel fine. They ate the same dinner everyone else had. What is going on here? The next day, Ida's children and the two friends report they're starting to feel better, but Mary and Ida are still in agony. By the second day, Ida has died. Then, the day after that, August 12, 1898, Mary dies. The others go on to recover, but something is not sitting right with Mary's father. And he's thinking back on the events of the night everyone was taken ill, and he remembers the box of chocolates. He remembers that when Mary opened the box of chocolates to pass around, Ida, her two children, and the two friends each accepted a single chocolate. Ida, sharing her sister's sweet tooth, took a second. Mary herself also ate two. But he and his wife passed on the chocolates, and they were the only two who did not get sick. Mary's father, who was a former congressman named John Pennington, goes and gets the anonymous letters Mary had been receiving a few weeks back and compares the handwriting to the note that came with the box of chocolates and finds it's the same. His political career had afforded him some pull with the local law enforcement, and they send the remaining chocolates to be analyzed by a chemist. And sure enough, they find grains of arsenic inside the chocolates. His daughters have been poisoned to death. An investigation is opened and Mary's husband, John, is summoned back from Puerto Rico. When he arrives, he recognizes the handwriting of the letters and note immediately. He confirms what pretty much everyone had been thinking, which is that the handwriting belonged to Cordelia Botkin, his mistress, in San Francisco. He even provides love letters from Cordelia to back up his claim. A detective from Delaware travels to San Francisco with the letters and chocolate as evidence, where the San Francisco police open their own investigation. They find Cordelia in Stockton, California, at the home of her estranged husband and son. They confront her with the evidence and ask her to explain herself, and she says, Wasn't me. That's not my handwriting. I didn't write those letters. I've never seen that chocolate box before in my life. Unfortunately for Cordelia... She was apparently very memorable to a lot of people she'd encountered within the past week or so. First, she had purchased an empty chocolate box at Wave Confections and as such stood out to the clerk who assisted her. She then purchased a candy at a different store and made a thing about taking them with her to pack herself because she wanted to pack something else in the box too. 
The clerk at the City of Paris department store remembered selling Cordelia the handkerchief because Cordelia apparently bore a remarkable resemblance to the clerk's deceased mother. The clerk even produced a photo of her late mother, and it was true. Cordelia looked just like her. The chemist remembered Cordelia because she had wanted to purchase arsenic for bleaching a straw hat, and he had tried to advise her otherwise, as there was a number of better ways to go about it. But she could not be persuaded. She wanted the arsenic. The postal clerk who assisted Cordelia when she mailed the package happened to be named John Dunnigan. Cordelia had addressed the package to Mrs. John Dunning. The postal clerk couldn't help but notice a similarity to his own name and had no trouble recalling the exchange with Cordelia. Finally, Cordelia had apparently been lodging in a hotel for some time, and in the room she'd been staying in, they were able to find a piece of a torn seal that was from the candy store where she'd purchased the chocolates. Meaning she had for sure purchased those chocolates, taken them back to her room, and opened them. The insinuation being she likely then loaded them up with arsenic, packed them into the other box, and shipped them to Marion, Delaware. So they have the evidence. They're going to try her for murder. But where? This case was unique in that it was the first murder ever committed by mail. Officials in Delaware, where the victims were, wanted her extradited from California to be tried there. But California didn't think it seemed right that she should be tried in a state that she'd never even set foot in. Eventually, it was upheld by the Supreme Court that the case would indeed be tried in California. So all the witnesses and everyone in Delaware had to pack their bags and head to California. The trial began in the early part of December 1898 and was presided over by Judge Carol Cook. Of course, it was a media circus. There was not a seat to be had in the gallery, and hundreds waited outside the courthouse daily for news of the trial. In the end, after four hours of deliberation, Cordelia was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Before Cordelia could be transferred to San Quentin State Penitentiary, though, there was another case where it was determined that the judge erred when providing instructions to the jury. Something about the significance of circumstantial evidence versus direct evidence. The ruling affected many cases, including Cordelia's, and it was ruled that her case would have to be retried. So in 1904, everyone took another trip back to San Francisco for a second trial, where she was, again, found guilty, and it was decided that the life imprisonment sentence did still stand. Now, in between the two trials, and while Cordelia awaited the higher court to affirm the sentence, she had been housed at the Branch County Jail. And she was reportedly pretty comfy there. She had a nice cell outfitted with some comforts of home. I believe she was permitted to wear her own dresses. In fact, after the second trial, Judge Carol Cook was riding a streetcar past the jail on his way to visit a cemetery his wife has buried in, when to his utter surprise, he sees Cordelia on the same streetcar as him, out and about, free as a bird. He sees her get off the streetcar and head towards the jail, but he loses sight of her. The very next day, he takes a little trip over to the jail to investigate. He learns it's rumored that in return for sexual favors, the guards often let Cordelia out to roam around the city as she pleased, as long as she returned in the evenings. A number of the prison staff and Cordelia herself were questioned, but no one would admit to anything. Cordelia went so far as to try to pin her crimes on this mysterious lookalike the judge had seen out and about, though no one took her seriously. But because no one would talk, Nothing happened. In 1906, the Great San Francisco earthquake damaged the jail, resulting in overcrowding of the area where Cordelia was being held. She did not like this and asked to be transferred to San Quentin. 
Her request was granted, but I don't think she was able to persuade the guards and prison staff to accommodate her with the comfortable conditions she enjoyed prior, and it started to take a toll on her health. Her husband, Welcome, had divorced her after her first trial, and in the years between 1904 and 1907, her ex-husband, son, father, and lover, John, all died. She became extremely depressed and melancholy, as they were wont to say in the Victorian era, and on March 7, 1910, at the age of 56, she lost consciousness and died the same day. The cause of death was listed as softening of the brain due to melancholy. She is buried in the Oak Mound Cemetery in Hillsburg, California. If you head over to Instagram, at Goodnight for a Murder, you can see some photos of Cordelia, her lover John, victim Mary, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons for this episode is another story of a murder carried out by mailing someone poisoned treats. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.